Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health podcast. This week's episode focuses on direct oral anticoagulants in the treatment of cancer-related venous thromboembolisms. The episode has been sponsored by an EDUCAL grant from Pfizer, and the views expressed are those of the speakers and are not of Pfizer or EMJ. For the podcast today, we are joined by Dr. Harry Gibbs, Deputy Director of General Medicine at the Alfred Hospital, Melbourne, Australia, as well as Dr. Eric Klock, Specialist of Internal Medicine from the Leiden University Medical Centre in the Netherlands. The two will be discussing real-world patient cases with varying outcomes, as well as the influence of new trial updates in the decision-making for treatments. I will now hand over to our two experts for the discussion. My case is a uh, 64-year-old woman, actually, with nothing relevant in the medical history. She came to the hospital with abdominal pain and was diagnosed after a CT scan with uh, possibly advanced gastric cancer with a uh, large tumor mass surrounding the, the, um, the stomach, but also, and that's why I was consulted, with a large clot in the inferior vena cava. There were also multiple tumor localizations in the abdomen, and there was an hydronephrosis of the left kidney because of compression of the outflow of the kidney by tumor. And the first question that we were asked is, uh, how should we give this patient treatment for this clot? And I'm not sure if you have ever encountered the case, Harry. First thing I would say is that I don't think I've ever seen a case of a gastric tumor with tumor thrombus in the inferior vena cava. I mean, the classical tumor, of course, is a renal cell carcinoma that uh, has extension into the renal veins and from there into the inferior vena cava. And so in this particular instance, firstly, I would anticoagulate the patient if the diagnosis is clear that there is thrombus in the inferior vena cava. Just as an aside from the Garfield um, VTE registry, we did look at patients who had involvement of the inferior vena cava, and it is a poor prognostic sign. So I think that should be, you know, we should note that. But from the sounds of the extent of the tumour, this woman has very poor um prognosis anyway. Can I ask, what is the renal function? Yeah, so the estimated clearance was approximately 32 milliliters per minute. And I would very much agree with you. At first, we had a discussion whether it would be a tumor thrombus or not, because actually the the, the uh, Fenikeva was surrounded by tumor mass, uh, and it was also some compression of the, of, the, of the vein. So it could also be just local bland thrombosis, but the radiologist actually described tumor ingrowth in the vessels uh, and also part of the clot that actually absorbs some contrast, which would be suggestive of a tumor clot. Uh, but yeah, in, in the end, it's very difficult. I'm not sure how you do this, but it's very difficult to really establish the fact whether it's a true that's a venous thromboembolism or whether it's a tumor clot based on these images. And the renal function was just enough to be above 30 milliliters per minute. So I would say that even if there is a significant amount of tumor in the inferior vena cava, there will also be thrombus, which has the potential to embolize. So I think that the patient should receive anticoagulation. I guess the other question that you need to address if there is occlusion of the inferior vena cava is whether thrombolytic therapy might be indicated. And in this situation, I would probably not offer that because of the risk of um, bleeding into metastases um, and because 
thrombolytic therapy for, in particular, ileofemoral uh, DVT is really aimed at preventing long-term complications of the post-thrombotic syndrome, and that's not going to be an issue with this patient who's going to have a pretty poor prognosis. I recommend thrombolytic therapy, first of all. Yeah, so I, it's on to anticoagulation. Yes, I would agree. I mean, she, she did have some bilateral uh, leg edema, and we performed an ultrasound of both legs, and there was no clot in the proximal deep veins of both legs. It was just confined to the to the vena cava. And and, and and in the end, and what, what would be your choice for 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 drug? Would you go for intravenous, or would you go for subcutaneous or oral drugs? Yeah. So so I guess my my first line therapy for cancer associated thrombosis is a DOAC. So we know from early studies of vitamin K antagonists that low molecular weight heparin as monotherapy has a significantly lower recurrence rate than vitamin K antagonist therapy. And then we know from the DOAC trials that DOACs have a significantly lower rate again of recurrent venous thromboembolism. And from the Caravaggio trial, this uh, did not occur with any um, increase in bleeding. So I would, I now believe that DOAC therapy is the first line therapy for cancer associated thrombosis. And then I have to think, is there a reason why I won't use a DOAC in this patient? Challenge you a bit, eh? so you think yeah, sure. DOAC should be the first line of treatment. Do you think they are superior in their safety profile or efficacy profile, or do you think they are just easier to take for the patient? So I think they're superior in the efficacy profile, and a Pixaban, which has the largest trial, is equal in terms of safety. But in terms of safety, you do have to be careful with, in particular, upper gastrointestinal tract cancers, which this woman has. But in my experience, the risk of fatal or really life-threatening upper gastrointestinal bleeding is pretty rare, actually. So when these people bleed, it's something that you can manage, in my experience. So, so I, I think because of the efficacy, I would favour a DOAC. The other thing is that, as you know, recurrence of VTE is more common in patients with cancer than those who don't have cancer. And if you have a recurrent event, it is a problem to manage clinically because you then have to increase the or change the anticoagulant or increase the level of anticoagulation or do something extra. And that then increases your risk of bleeding. So I, I like to use the most efficacious drug and that to me is a DOAC. But in this case, there are some other considerations and the renal function is the first. And secondly, the need for potential procedures. Now, as you know, again, the pharmacokinetics of um, low molecular weight heparin are very similar to that of DOACs, but for some reason, certainly in Australia, um, if someone, if a patient needs to have a procedure, most proceduralists are more comfortable having initial low molecular weight heparin therapy, which is discontinued prior to the procedure and then recommenced after, as opposed to having a DOAC before the procedure, which is then um, stopped and restarted after, even though those two approaches are probably equal. Most of our interventionalists prefer low molecular heparin because that's what they're used to. So in this woman, she may need a nephrostomy or she may need ureteric stents. She may need something to relieve that urinary obstruction. I think that's probably important if possible because she will, is at a significant risk of having worsening um, acute kidney injury. 
um, and that's going to also make the anticoagulation more difficult. So with that in mind, I would start her off on a low molecular weight heparin. And then I would look at the various tests and so on that might need to be done. Does she need a biopsy of the mass just to confirm that it's a cancer and find out what kind of cancer it is and see if there's any treatment that might help? And secondly, does she need the urinary obstruction relieved? And once I've sorted those things out, I would put her onto a Pixaban. Yeah, very good considerations. We had, of course, many of the same thoughts, although I'm not so sure if you really, if you can be sure that DOAX are better than lomacoid heparin with regard to the combination of safety and efficacy profile, because in the trials where we saw better protection from, for VTE, we also saw more bleeding. And the only trial that did not show really a beneficial effect that was so-so, as so in the Caravaggio trial, that was, let's say, the, the risks of bleeding and the recurrences were more or less the same. So I think there's an advantage when you have to take, when you can take a tablet and you don't have to inject yourself, but I would not be so much convinced, especially not for those gastrointestinal bleedings, uh, tumors, uh, that the safety profile of, of DOAX really is better than lomacoid heparin. Although we also I'm a very know, optimistic doctor. I'm a very positive <laughs> very doctor. But we, we also know that patients with lomacoid heparin will bleed from the stomach. So it's not, you know, it's not a guarantee that they won't bleed. But it, these are the considerations. Also, you know, um, while we were actually because we saw ingrowth of the tumor into the vessel wall, and our radiologist actually was was really um, relatively sure that it was also tumor thrombus. We also the fact that tumor thrombi were of course not included in the current DOAC trials. And there are actually no trials at all anti-agregant treatment in tumor thrown by. But it was, again, also a reason to stick to what we've been doing for the past years and give this patient lomacoid heparin. And indeed, we gave her in the prostomy and we performed a biopsy to confirm the cancer. And, uh, and we did actually perform a few times an anti-TNA level assessment to make sure that we were still in the right direction. And but, but then came the point that patient, uh, I think two months later, she had, well, she was, she, she actually, she had decided not to have any time of treatment because her prognosis was very poor and she uh, had poor performance status. And we were discussing with her and she was still taking omega heparin because she also was very nausea and had very much trouble eating at all, let alone taking tablets. And then also her renal function deteriorated again. And uh, it was around, uh, I think, uh, clearance of 20 millis per minute. And then we were t discussing with her end of life care. And she preferred going home and having the care of her GP. So we called her the GP and we discussed how shall we now continue with uh, medications? Shall we stop? Should we continue? What do we continue? And do we have to keep measuring the renal function or even activity levels of the drug. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that, Harry. So this is really for yeah. end-of-life care, and the oncologist gave her a few weeks to live as estimation. Uh, so so first of all, I'll, I'll just say that while I said that DOACs are really my um, first-line therapy, I agree with everything that you've said, and there's nothing wrong with low molecular weight heparin. We know exactly how to use it from having done that for many decades. Um, and in some situations, uh, such as, um, for example, a transient thrombocytopenia or, say, a little bit of minor bleeding or something, we, we're able to um, go beyond what the evidence would tell us and adjust the dose. We might use a half a dose 
for a week or two until the platelets recover um, and so on. And, and we're really comfortable with just, you know, using these drugs um, in a way that is beyond the trial information. Whereas I don't think we have the same ability to dose adjust and to modify the um, use of DOAX. So th there's clearly a very good place for low molecular weight heparin still. So coming to end of life care, I think that's that's very interesting, very difficult. Um, firstly, clearly patient preference, um, you know, is, is extremely important here and the um, various options available should be uh, presented to the patient who can then make a decision. I think that at this point, any treatment is aiming to reduce suffering and not to prolong life. And many people um, in this situation feel that massive pulmonary embolism might be a quick and painless um, end to someone's life. And that might well be true, but non-fatal pulmonary embolism can be extremely unpleasant and can be associated with chest pain, uh, marked shortness of breath, and so on. And I've also seen a number of patients with extremely distressing, massive um, venous thrombosis associated with impending venous gangrene, um, which is also extremely un unpleasant. And so I think as we make a decision about discontinuation of anticoagulant therapy, the, the potential of those unpleasant, um, painful, um, things that could really impair quality of life have to be taken into account. And, and I think sometimes they're not. So I can probably tell I favour anticoagulation. I would probably, again, having discussed all this with the patient, I would probably advise to continue with some anticoagulation. And uh, until the patient gets to the very terminal phase of perhaps being in the last days of their life, in which case all treatment should be stopped and perhaps um, morphine and, and midazolam or some other drugs are given by infusion at the very end of their life. So, and then, so I would discuss with the patient that they could, uh, that she could receive a DOAC, which really would be, again, a bit off label here, particularly with the renal function. But if, if that was um, going to be, if she, if she was sick of having injections, then I think that would be quite a reasonable thing to do. So it depended on what she felt about having the injections. I think that's exactly the same, the same, uh, the, the, the very good answer. So it depends on what she wants. And I think all options are on the table uh, and anything can be discussed. Uh, but the thing that I wanted to prevent is to give her a treatment that might cause her bleeding because the circumstances would change, because the function would further decline or other um, um, uh, complex situations may occur. So my uh, my idea was whatever we decide, I do not want to expose her to potentially uh, super therapeutic doses of anti-agregant drugs. And uh, the, the patient and also the GP, they uh, agreed with that and the patient didn't mind the, the, the injection so much. And in the end, we decided to give her prophylactic doses of low heparin. And with that, we would not be needed to do any uh, checks of the renal function uh, and of course also no antitene levels and we kept it with that and uh, in the end she passed away um, I think four weeks later and her family <clears throat> and also the GP reported back to us that they were very happy with the way they were involved in this decision 
and possibly she had recurrent DVT or a pulmonary embolism because she had increased leg swelling at the end of life and it felt shortness of breath. But those were treated with, uh, with morphine and um, in the end it was of course a sad happening but everybody was happy with how we managed the case. So and we were of course also happy because we let the patient make the decision and uh, she supported well the, the treatment along the way. Yeah, so so that's um, I think a good outcome um, under those circumstances. Uh, I think you know the having the patient make uh, being involved in the decision making and the family is um, absolutely vital here. But of course we do influence them in the way that we present things. And I find it fascinating actually that uh, doctors have a philosophy. Some doctors have a philosophy that favours safety and they're less inclined to prescribe medications because they're worried they might cause a side effect. And others favour efficacy because they really want to prevent the um, you know, thing that you're trying to stop from happening from happening. And uh, I'm, I'm, I think I've Fit more in the efficacy, and you fit more in the safety side of well, things. Well, in this case, yeah, indeed. But yeah. You've, got to, you've got to balance it, haven't you? You have to you have to balance it, and and um, and uh, yeah. Well, we, we lack, of course, the tools to have an optimal conversation with any patient in any circumstances. Every patient is unique and the circumstances are unique and it's your experience and the feeling of the patient that in the end should help decide. And the GP was involved and was a very smart thing to do, I think, because she also very much supported the final management decision and that helped, that gave peace uh, and it helped very much in executing uh, our decision. So in the end, it was discussion with all involved uh, healthcare personnel and of course the patients and caretakers. And that I think is the message. Whatever you decide, whatever you go on, we'll go for. If 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 the patient and the caretakers are involved and they agree, then you did a good job. I'd agree with that. I, I have a case I might ask you about. So this is the case of a man who was 76 years old and previously well, and he became sick with COVID-19, and because of um, hypoxia was admitted to hospital. Um, he didn't require intensive care therapy, but he did require oxygen therapy and um, was quite uh, hypoxic um, in hospital. He was also treated with dexamethasone and some sterile, uh, some uh, anti-viral um, therapy. In hospital, he had a CT scan performed because of hypoxia. And this uh, showed a typical appearance of COVID pneumonitis, but also um, some subsegmental pulmonary embolism. At about the same time, he was found to have an elevation of uh, his troponin, and the high sensitivity troponin uh, was quite elevated. It was about 3,000. So the upper limit of normal for us is about 30. So that this was a pretty significant increase. He didn't have any chest pain, but he had been he was short of breath with any exertion, any movement. Um, and he did have some lateral T-wave inversion transiently, but no ST elevation. So that was the case. I guess my first question would be about the troponin and, and what do you think the significance of that is? Yes. Very good. Uh, may, may I ask for a little bit more detail? So this CT scan yeah. was done upon admission or after a few days in hospital? After a while in hospital, a number of days in hospital. Yeah, and, and did he, and was any investigation performed with regard to the presence of the potential presence of thrombosis 
with, for instance, a D-dimer or, or uh, uh, ultrasound of the legs the prior to that? So he had not had a D-dimer, um, although I think in the setting of COVID-19 infection, it probably would have been elevated. Um, and he did have a subsequent ultrasound of the leg veins, and that was actually normal. And did he receive any thromboprophylaxis during his initial days at the hospital? Yes, he was receiving anoxaparin 40 milligrams daily. Yeah, all right. And a final question would be, uh, he had, I presume, a normal renal function um, at the moment of the treatment. He's got chronic kidney disease with a creatinine clearance or or an estimated GFR that was around about 40 and that had been documented to be this in the past as well. Yes. So, so then my interpretation will be this would definitely be a relevant troponin level an abnormal troponin level. Uh, and we know that tr- troponin levels are an important marker of severe pulmonary embolism and damage to the myocardium because often because of the increased pulmonary artery pressure, increased pulmonary artery resistance, uh, you, you get overload of the RV and overload of the RV causes stress and on the myocardium. And uh, if the RV swells too much, the LV will have problems with having a good systolic and diastolic function and you will have hypoperfusion of the myocardium and the coronary arteries, which may cause, of course, a pan-ischemia in the heart. So uh, it would be very relevant to understand, and with a normal renal function, at least not a decline in the renal function, I would not estimate that this is just a symptom of, of a chronic uh, renal insufficiency. So the important thing here is, how was the right heart doing in this patient? Because there are alternative diagnoses of just a elevated troponin, uh, also in the setting of viral infections, because there could also myocarditis could be possibly the case. So do you have any information from the CT scan or from a performed echo of the heart of the function of the RV? Both both of those things. So just again, the the CT pulmonary angiogram showed subsegmental pulmonary embolism. So there wasn't a great deal of thrombus burden and there was no evidence of right heart strain on uh, the CT scan. And he did have an echo that showed that there was no evidence of pulmonary hypertension. And were there any evidence of myocarditis? Were there any regional abnormalities in the movement of the walls of the left ventricle or any other abnormalities or infusion? No, no. The the left ventricle appeared to have normal global systolic function. Right. So then then there is, of course, a discrepancy between the RV appearance on the CT and the echo and the elevation of the troponin. And then when we go back to specifically to COVID-19, we know that patients with COVID-19, especially, let's say, during the first waves of of the pandemic, where most of the patients were male, obese, severely hypoxic and with considerable inflammation, admitted to the hospital wards or even to the ICU. So these are the perfect conditions for a thrombotic storm. And we know there was a high incidence of venous thromboembolism, but also, uh, and this became only apparent later on, possibly there's a high prevalence of in situ uh, pulmonary thrombosis, especially in the small vessels where uh, because of destruction of the local uh, microvasculature, there is a complete stop of the flow of the blood, which may cause, together with the local inflammation, may cause thrombotic occlusions within the pulmonary artery tree without having a formal embolism. And the fact that in this case, it was confined to the subsegmental arteries and there was considerable pneumonitis uh, on the CT scan 
and especially when the pneumonitis locations would fit the locations of the perfusion defects in the subsequent arteries, the diagnosis may be not pulmonary embolism, but pulmonary thrombosis. Having said that, of course, the uh, treatment would be the same because those patients require anticoagulation. We have no formal studies of the effect of anticoagulation on pulmonary thrombosis, but also we do not have any clue or an idea that it would not be at least relevant to give those patients some anticoagulant therapy. And then the main question so would what be... what would you give him? Uh, in, in this case, the patient is hospitalized, is, on, uh, is uh, on, on oxygen, and there may be a reason for the patient to be transferred. I, I'm not sure how his situation was to the to the ICU. So if the patient w w was on the verge of respiratory collapse, I would probably start with low microwave heparin. But if the patient was doing well, could have normal diet and could eat, and did not have was able to take pills and did not have any pending bleeding risk from any kind, any sort, I would be very comfortable with giving him, him a, a DOAC up front. Okay, so the decision was to give him low molecular weight heparin. So he was commenced on that. I didn't mention, but he did have a history of hypertension that had been treated for many years, but otherwise he had no cardiac history. But the cardiology service were consulted and their opinion was that this might represent a type 2 myocardial infarct based on the fact that he'd been quite hypoxic. So the next question is, would you recommend that he receive aspirin in addition to low molecular heparin? So in this case, and again, uh, that would depend on the patient, but if he had been diagnosed with hypertension, has chronic renal insufficiency, it probably has some atherosclerosis as well. And if the patient would have atherosclerotic lesions and myocardial infarction, especially type 1 myocardial infarction, together with pulmonary embolism, it would be an indication for combination therapy of platelet inhibitors and anticoagulation. In this case, while we're not sure yet, but assuming there is not a culprit lesion and that requires PCI, I would say that therapeutically dosed anticoagulation should be enough and also giving aspirin would increase the risk of bleeding considerably. So I would stick in this case to the anticoagulation only. Well, that was probably exactly what should have happened, but that's not what happened. He was administered aspirin and a number of days later complained of some pain in his back, which was thought to uh, be the fact that he's lying in an uncomfortable hospital bed. Uh, but the morning after that, he had hemodynamic collapse and was found to have a massive retroperitoneal hemorrhage that required embolization. There was a bleeding branch of the external iliac artery that was successfully embolized. But he, he was actually shocked with a, a blood pressure of about 80 that required resuscitation. So I think, you know, in retrospect, the idea that uh, aspirin was going to be helpful, I think, was wrong. I mean, I think the, the there is a bit of a um, reflex reaction in Australia that patients who have an elevation of troponin get treated as if they have an acute coronary syndrome. But many of them, of course, don't. They have some other reason. And I guess, you know, to me, the, the idea here is, does he have a ruptured plaque in a coronary artery that has platelets aggregating and thrombin forming and dissolving and so on, where an antiplatelet agent is going to make a difference? Or does he have a stenosis which is not ruptured, but where it's limiting flow, in which case you need to improve the oxygenation uh, or improve his blood pressure or whatever, but antiplatelets won't help? 
or does he have, as you mentioned, myocarditis related to COVID infection? And I don't think that thought process actually occurred adequately in this case. And so he was given aspirin and then he, and he bled. So what would you do now after he's had this? Oh, sorry. Yeah, now, now you come in a difficult situation that you alluded to in previous case, that if you have a patient with a clot, whatever clot it is, and you start treatment, antivirant treatment or antithrombotic treatment, and then there's a bleeding, well, uh, it's too zero behind because now you have actually a contraindication to to antiviral treatment, depending on the bleeding, of course. Uh, but the fact that the patient is bleeding will also activate his, his coagulation system and increase the risk for new clots, or even it may cause uh, a DIC, all conditions in which you know that the risk of having new clots is elevated. So this is a difficult situation uh, that needs to be managed by a team, I think, of the treating physician, a hematologist, cardiologist, uh, and in this case, interventional, I think, radiologist who did... Um, coiling and did they find really culprit lesion did they have a, a marked spot where he was bleeding or was it just yep. diffuse bleeding yeah no no there was identified a small branch of the external iliac artery where, that was actively bleeding we were able to embolize that and and you could see immediately that that bleeding stopped oh. yeah, but, that's, yeah that's I, a, I just wanted good... to emphasize that yeah. bleeding leads to thrombosis and it's really a bad complication in people who are actively thrombotic because it does make them a lot more thrombotic and in addition to the things that you mentioned this man has gone from being you know reduced in his level of activity because of COVID but now being bed bound and so the immobility will again further increase his risk of thrombosis and the need for procedures again increase it so yeah it's, it is a it's a difficult situation. Would you consider an IVC filter for this man? Yeah, yeah so I, the, he's lucky because there was a culprit lesion that was treated. So the risk of re-bleeding are probably or possibly lower than if that would be more of a blend bleeding. Uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, and in this case, I think uh, I may have concluded that it's pulmonary thrombosis and not pulmonary embolism. Uh, and then I would possibly initiate or restart uh, prophylactic dose lomacrate heparin, or even depending on how certain the radiologist is on the, the situation, intermediate doses of lomacrate heparin and not give a, a, a PCI, because I would expect to be able to resume full dose intercalation on relatively short notice. And again, there was not a venous thrombotic event, but a local thrombotic event in the lungs. So I can tell you what we did. This is actually um, a case from this week. Uh, so it's active case. We did place an IVC filter. The reason for that is that whilst he'd had a lower extremity ultrasound that did not show DVT, I felt that he was still at a significant risk of developing DVT now that he was immobile and um, had had to be, had procedures and so on. And I thought that uh, if he were to have further, I, I, I just thought it made it a, a bit simpler to know that his risk of dangerous pulmonary embolism would be reduced. So he had an IVC filter placed, all his anticoagulants were stopped for about four days, and then he went on to a low dose of a prophylactic dose of low molecular heparin and we've withheld antiplatelets. And he's having a CT coronary angiogram, which is about to be performed. So that's what we're going to do with him and see if he does have coronary artery disease or not. Yeah, so in the end, any decision here again is okay as long as your team has all the considerations and, and it's always more complex than we can just discuss here in a few minutes.
Uh, and especially if you would have considered this a pulmonary embolism rather than a pulmonary thrombosis, then the indication for the filter will be, of course, much stronger. I, I think um, I quite like IVC filters, um, but you have to remember to take them out. And sometimes that gets forgotten. And it's ex so I'll, I'll be planning on taking this filter out probably in about two or three weeks' time. Yeah. yeah so if we are called for an IVC filter, we say always no, 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 and then perhaps... And then we look at the case, uh, and usually we only give it to patients with an acute clot and active bleeding or impending risk of bleeding, so two days after neurosurgery or something like that. And this case would, of course, fit that description. So from that point of view, I, I, I understand I can understand that you made this decision, and of course I hope for the best uh, outcome of, of him. Thanks, Eric. And that concludes today's podcast. Thank you to Dr. Harry Gibbs and Dr. Eric Klock for such a great discussion today on DOAX and the treatment of cancer-related VTE. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit our archive for plenty of great podcasts covering many healthcare-related topics just like this one. But for now, stay safe, stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMG Health Podcast very soon. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.